it's demanded of us that we transform our organizational capacity to face existential problems and that we have place-based, local, regenerative outcomes that aggregate at a planetary scale. That's the context that we're emerging as a living system response to what's happening, as a community response to what's happening. I think that the imperative in the 21st century for institutions to be relevant is out-cooperate the competition. That's our North Star. That is our motto at Region Network, out-cooperate the competition. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host, Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Today, we're joined by Gregory Landway, co-founder and CEO of Region Network. Region Network is leading the way towards tracking and funding ecological regeneration and carbon sequestration in ecosystems by leveraging remote sensing, machine learning and blockchain technology. Region Networks adopts a very interesting approach to solving the large-scale coordination needed for this to happen. Land stewards and funders subscribe to customizable smart contracts and the impacts of the regenerative practices is objectivized through community-independent and database verification. This eventually enables rewards for verified positive change. Their motto is to out-cooperate competition in this space. Gregory Landway has a long history in the regeneration community, not the least by being a tropical agroforestry farm owner and manager, assisting farms and communities in a variety of climate zones as a permaculture designer and, according to his words, Regen Network was indeed called into existence by the growing maturity of the regenerative agricultural ecosystem. Tune into this conversation to learn more about auditing carbon claims, the role of information parity, proof of stake versus proof of work, the issue with moneyness, and how Region Network represents an important case study for the realization of a polycentric blockchain-based approach to ecosystem mobilization. Here we go with Gregory Landway. Hello, everyone. We are back at the Boundaries Conversations podcast. Today with me, there is my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, everyone. And I also have with me today, uh, Gregory Landway. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Basically, Greg, uh, if I can uh, call you like that, you are now the CEO, right? Uh, it's uh, one week you're back at the CEO seat, am I right? Yeah, that's right. Just uh, just, just a couple weeks back, being the, the sh- I shifted roles from chief regeneration officer back to chief executive officer of, uh, of R&D Incorporated, uh, which is one of the businesses involved in building Regen Network. Fantastic. So then maybe you can just go ahead a little bit and uh, and uh, give us a, a quick overview, let's say, of the the basic aspects of, of Region Network. Sure. Well, Region Network is, I suppose, first and foremost, a community dedicated to um, ecological and eventually planetary regeneration. And we're built around a public ledger of ecological health which is a public proof of stake blockchain called Region Ledger, and um, are sort of an ecosystem of different organizations who are governing that public ledger, that protocol, and building out 
the applications that use that public ledger in order to verify uh, ecological state and do things like produce carbon credits is the most sort of uh, in terms of uh, our in- most usual interaction with the marketplace right now is in serving the voluntary market for carbon credits, sort of high quality carbon credits and improving transparency in that marketplace. But as listeners may note from, uh, you know, I'm, I didn't start by saying, you know, region network is a voluntary carbon, uh, you know, business. Uh, that is, that is our sort of the easiest way to conceptualize how we're interacting with the marketplace, but we really are quite committed to a, a little bit more transformative action taking place. Right. Basically, this is exactly what we want to investigate. So uh, what is the new thing here? So when we were doing a quick uh, conversation at the start, uh, uh, you know, I, I told you, you know, I want to investigate, I want to understand really what is the blockchain, the DLT technologies and their inherent, uh, you know, a different uh, way to manage uh, trust uh, and information uh, Uh, reliability and, uh, you know, market optimization, pricing, what are they really bringing uh, in terms of new enablers that they brought up uh, so that you could think about uh, region network? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different attributes of blockchain specifically and perhaps DLT more broadly that are... I think prerequisites for the kind of in sort of market engagement that we're working on. So just zooming out, you know, to use some sort of dry and boring economics speech here, <laughs> we're, you know, essentially we're working to internalize previously externalized costs in the economy um, or, and, or, fund public goods, depending on which lens you'd like to use in any particular instance. So funding public goods, and what do I mean by that? You know, it's a public good at this stage to um, stabilize the climate, right? And, and, and working to stabilize the climate is something that's quite hard to turn into a private good, Meaning I can't exclude people from a healthy climate. Everyone will benefit from that. I can't exclude people from, you know, a healthy environment. Everyone will benefit from that. These are, these are notoriously challenging for, I guess, especially neoliberal economists to think about. Um, and we're working on the sort of market commons state interface in this problem of public goods. So that's sort of like a, an abstract economic exploration of the domain that we're in. And what do blockchains, I mean, I think your question here is what specifically about a blockchain or a distributed ledger um, is beneficial in that domain? So I, I would answer that in, in the following way. Um, in order to do accounting around a public good or or commons, for instance, you need to be able to have a pre-competitive, pre-competitive information parity. Actors need access 
to the same knowledge. The way that, you know, I guess in quotes, capitalism or our current economy works is that there's every incentive if you have access to information that other members of society don't have access to, to take advantage of that to the fullest. And we see that happening in the way that, you know, in sort of like disinformation, misinformation campaigns on social media. Um, We see that in the way that, you know, climate change as it is right now is an artifact of the science that was funded by the, you know, petroleum industry back in the 70s that told us all about everything we needed to know about atmospheric carbon's effect on and the greenhouse effect. You know, all of this stuff was well known, but the information was not um, available to the democratic decision-making mechanisms in society. And, you know, petroleum companies made the decision to optimize their short-term gains and keep that information to themselves. So clearly, you know, people having access to ecological state information, the basic information of how our biosphere is um, is health-wise. You know, our belief is that that needs to be radically democratized and accessible, and that the only real way to do that is not to have sort of privately funded institutional um, science at the backbone. That's how we got into this mess. That model of societal sense-making is broken. There, there's too much perverse incentive in that system. So we need to redesign the game itself, the mechanisms and the incentives around information sharing at, as the base layer of market signals, commons management, policy. All of that needs to be reinvented. And blockchain has attributes that are transformative in that environment. One is you have uh, censorship-proof um, a- a- public, a censorship proof public ledger in which the the important information is equally accessible to all parties. Um, At least, you know, and there's some hand waving taking place there. And there's a lot of details to dive into about what that actually means. Um, The other is the ability to, to, to program incentives and to govern algorithms. And this is actually where I think blockchain really shines. I think the, the, the ubiquitous access to in public sort of a commons approach to information access is very important, but even more important in my mind is the ability of users to govern the algorithms that govern them. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we can create sensors, you know, uh, censure and incentives, the carrot and the stick around economic relationships and program that in in a transparent way to a state machine or a blockchain and and that can allow everyone who opts in to those contracts or relationships to also tweak and change and govern and upgrade the the carrots and the sticks that are transparently influencing the behavior in order to ensure that it's connected to the the health of the commons that everybody is relying on for, you know, our basic needs as humans and and beyond just human needs, not just anthro anthropocentric needs, the needs of the planet as as a whole system. So I'm going to pause there and let you guide me a little more. That was probably quite a a mindful. 
Yeah, I was. Uh, my reflection is, and I think you can uh, tag on to that, uh, is that I, I'm taking a little bit the position of the layman person here because uh, the distributed sort of ledgers is uh, something that is sometimes not very easily accessible. So I'm, I'm, what I was thinking about uh, when you spoke is if things are transparent, are they accessible? And like, how do people benefit from information that might be very complex and how like, do you approach that? That's the key question. That's a fantastic question. I mean, our thesis, and it's going to take some time to get there, but our thesis is that markets, carbon markets, for instance, to just use a very concrete example where we're working right now and having some success, carbon markets, the, the price for any stakeholder in the world to audit a carbon claim should be as close to zero as possible. So exactly as you're saying everyone in order for information parity to be real you do need to you know it can't just be sort of transparency of the esoteric mathematical models data sets etc that are behind for instance a carbon claim because most people can't make any sense of that um that's where and there's a lot of work to do but but having and it's sort of a foundation that stuff does need to be um that data that underpins a claim so that we can make sense of it does need to be appropriately managed so that it's accessible by multiple parties so that so that there's a little bit of an intersubjective verification or sense making that that takes place and that whole little process of sort of um, digesting raw data and turning it into knowledge and then turning that knowledge into understanding and then wisdom right that that sort of flow needs to be well designed and have the right mechanisms for inclusion and access and engagement at every level so that the the wisdom that pops out that is you know maybe the meme on the internet that is you know and there's all sorts of really horrible memes out there like that because of this right there's all these meat like cows are bad for the climate it's a great example controversial statement that's a horrible meme and completely inaccurate um but we don't but but there's not parody of of information in order to to make a judgment about how that understanding was created and so it ends up creating the like, strange polarized sort of dynamics so many questions today so many reflections just one is uh why uh, a platform for this process? You know? So this process is going to happen because uh, what I like about the, the problem, let's say the space that you, you guys have been targeting is that uh, uh, no matter what, we need to take the carbon out of the atmosphere. So uh, it's, it's there, you know, it's a problem that is there, it's immanent. You know, it's, uh, you, know you cannot uh, just uh, close your eyes, it doesn't disappear. It's not about uh, how you, you know, how you, you know, are you what you wear or what you eat? You know? It's really about you know our survival, and um, I think it's interesting to know what you think about your your role in midwifing this uh, into the world. You know, so for example, you 
uh, as, as I, if I remember well, you got this major agreement with Microsoft. Am I right? Yeah, we well, we sold our first set of pilot carbon credits that were, you know, um, sort of built from first principles of direct measurement of um, the the soil and the ecosystem health in in a pilot project that we did in New South Wales, Australia. We we sold those to Microsoft as part of their um, commitment to offsetting all of their carbon emissions. Right. Which is uh, essentially what I mean when I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the, the probably the most advanced expression of, uh, of um, capitalism at the moment. So we're talking about different uh, systems of value creation that are emerging on top of what we have in society. So what is, and you, you building this platform for this to happen. So, which is, I don't, I don't think it's just about the data, the transparency, the information, but it's also about the other primitives that you are developing, such as these contracts, for example, that you, and, and the way that the ecosystem can create new contracts to account for the real work that gets done on the field in really uh, regenerating our, our, our soils and, uh, and so, so if you can speak about that a little bit, what do you do as a platform? What do you see as beyond the information and the transparency? So just, I'm in heated agreement about the, the existential nature of the problem. You know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful opportunity for, uh, for, for humans to galvanize in order to solve a, a, like a concrete, real existential problem through social coordination and ecological stewardship. So um, our platform is, our aim is to empower that kind of, the, the kind of social coordination that's necessary to, to mon- monitor and verify ecological state and to create agreements between parties about stewardship of ecological state. The, the current market conditions in this sort of advanced late stage capitalism that we're in m- means that there's a really, really robust market for voluntary carbon offsetting. That is the, the most simple way to think about because there's this active, vibrant market. Um, it's it's e- maybe easier for people to conceptualize what I'm talking about, where there's a, a set of stakeholders There's Microsoft on one side, there's a land steward on the other, there's a monitor and a verifier, and those people are coming together to make a contract about, to determine, did change happen and what is the value of that change and how do we monitor that change in an ongoing way? What are the risks, liabilities, and agreements around it? And what we're trying to do is make it so that that process of multiple stakeholders who may be adversarial coming together to pl- to place the appropriate value on something that benefits all of them namely ecological health and to do so in the most seamless most efficient and and highest quality way and that's what region network as a community that's what we're trying to build together so is supporting iteration around that supporting different i i would like to see more qualitative agreements What if we're making agreements about beauty and not just carbon quantification? That's fantastic. That's important, right? That's important work. At a, at a pattern level, though, I don't see it as too terribly different from people making an agreement about, 
you know, a quantified statement of, of carbon sequestration into soil, right? The, the same process of a group of humans coming together and formalizing an agreement about ecological state that, as you noted, is, is an existential demand. We have to do this as a species, right? So what we're trying to do is, is build the tools and access to, to those tools and governance of those tools and build a very strong, vibrant community around, around that as sort of like uh, the, the, a foundation for the next economy that's, that's emerging right now. And, and hopefully by doing so, that is, I believe that is the, the art of midwifing this new regenerative economy that's, that's being born. Right. And uh, in the concept of a platform, there is, in, in, let's say, inside uh, this concept, there is um, the idea of scale. No? So that's uh, at least a part of the picture. So I was thinking about how to make it not transactional, no? how to make it, uh, if you want, uh, place-based, this process. So how you know, we can make this process happen in, in a place-based way. You know, I was I was uh, talking with this friend last week, and uh, we were talking about uh, a kind of organizational development project for a, a network of farmers that are farming uh, wheat here in Italy. And he kind of, as a reaction to my reflection on developing the organizational side and the, the, the new possibilities, he was having a reaction like to say, you know, yeah, but I live here. You know, these are my rhythms. I cannot accelerate it because you know I'm living in the place. It's you know maybe it's something that our urban generation cannot really perceive anymore. So my question would be, how do you scale that? For example, can I invest into region network myself here or uh, someone else in another place? Uh, what is the attraction for us to invest into region network? And the other point would be, how do you build the capabilities for this to happen? in the place because this is about the place what do you think about that yeah uh no i think you're hitting the nail right on the head um so just practically speaking um at this moment in time you cannot invest in in region network um but in the very near future now that our mainnet is live and everything else um region tokens will be freely accessible essentially to anyone on the globe to be able to sort of buy in and become a stakeholder um, or alternative to buying in. And I think this is of, of huge importance. We also understand that, you know, by making governance only accept, accessible through sort of a transactional purchase, we, we may in fact, or likely will, or definitely will alienate the very stakeholders who most need to have a stake at the table in order to ensure that this roots firmly into place, as you're noting. And so uh, about 30% of the 30 million tokens of the 100 million initial token supply, which represents uh, each token represents one vote in the um, governance of this public protocol um, is set aside and stewarded by region foundation in order to endow land stewards, uh, science groups, indigenous people, even landscapes. We're, we're talking with um, landscapes that have, have gotten rights, have followed the rights of nature based uh, creation of corporate persons to engage with the current 
you know, uh, legal social matrix of the world. So mountains, rivers, lakes, um, these places and, and the people who steward the places and the people who help make sense of so that a larger community can sort of understand what's happening somewhere are all included in our sort of stakeholder map in a very tangible way, meaning these people are invited and we are putting significant, you know, money and, and time into building and sort of sort of crossing the digital divide so that people can have a meaningful option at a local level to govern the global ecological ledger. Clearly, we have to have a unified planetary accounting system. Clearly, we also need, you know, a, a place-based watershed scale, bioregional scale governance of ecosystems and engagement of stakeholders. I think sort of the cosmo-local dynamic there, the global-local planetary watershed nested relationship I don't even really see a dichotomy there. I see a deep complementarity. So, uh, yeah, I'll pause there and see if, you know, where you'd like to guide me. I want to drop a little bit of uh, spice in the conversation, let's say. You said, for example, the first thing you said now, we clearly need a global accounting system. If I challenge that, couldn't this work with the opposite perspective of, you know, multipolar antagonist localist economies, I mean, what we're building is a polycentric, multi-local grassroots approach to a global accounting system. I mean, that's what we're doing. But they have to, you can't achieve, uh, Jason Snyder and I were sort of talking about this. I was trying to push on this, like, I think this this false, this, this strange false dichotomy that stems, I, I think it's a... Um, it's a meme in the like in the localist movement or in, in and in the commons movement around there's no dichotomy there i don't think that it's nested and not in opposition they're different scales but they have to you know a tree is both rooted in place and doing exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen with a pool, a, a global pool of atmosphere that is swirling around the globe in in wind Right. This is very opposite if we look at, or this is very obvious if we look out the window. It's maybe more counterintuitive if we're thinking about institution design. Right. I totally wanted to confirm that, for example, we had this conversation with Indy Joa a few months ago when he pointed out even the intrinsic nature that the commons have to be premised on uh, the existence of an in-group and an out-group. And uh, instead, uh, DLT, for example, technologies, it was pointing out that they were uh, pushing contracting from one-to-one to end-to-end and to some extent uh, uh, remove the information asymmetries that uh, you uh, were um, talking about. And uh, in this way, essentially uh, remove uh, this idea of ungroup, out-group and in-group, because if we are all part of the same system, let's say, you know, this global accounting so I think you're right. It's going to happen at several layers, you know, and, and it's interesting the work you're doing because you are really connecting those layers. I think that this is uh, the key point that emerges. So with this land stewards, for example, and uh, these contracts uh, and the fact that you actually own the infrastructure in a distributed way, I think uh, you are creating this global thing, but by connecting these local capabilities. So I think the pattern is very interesting. And uh, the question, again, would be on, on the capabilities. So 
uh, it's right, you, we have the marketplace, but then do we have the farmers? Uh, that's uh, the point uh, that, uh, that maybe you can explore a bit more. What, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, creating the capabilities that we use the platform? Well, farmers seem to be very into it. I mean, we have put zero effort into um, attracting farmers to our platform and have a lot of farmers signaling interest or enrolling and engaging in in the sort of in the process to bring their soil carbon or biodiversity or water quality to, to market. Um, and, and part of that is because, you know, we didn't we haven't I mean, listeners who are familiar with my work will know this and people who aren't won't. But m- I mean, my background is working in agroecology, permaculture, agroforestry for you know, more than a decade before Regen Network was started. So I'm not a sort of breathless techno-utopian Silicon Valley bro, really, <laughs> in my background in any way. I'm, uh, you know, working with campesinos and smallholder farmers in cacao and coffee and, and other systems for my my whole adult life, really. Um, so so part of, So what that means is we have a lot of strong relationships with the land steward community globally and what that means is that this is could be considered region network could be considered as a an attempt from from that community which i would identify with to create the right infrastructure for agreements between that community and the rest of the world i think that's probably a pretty accurate way to think about the origin story of region network and the the bias and sort of like design boundaries that we have had going into these questions about how to use technology, how to engage with governance. Um, And just to circle back to um, this comment about, you know, what what Johar had talked about in terms of in-group, out-group dynamics, you know, I think there's a it's 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 going to be nested, overlapping, and complex. That's the nature of like a polyvalent or polycentric approach to governance. I I believe it's just an accurate representation of of both how the world works, just in living system from a living systems perspective, and therefore what design needs to look like. It's interesting. I do think there is a, a reinvention of what the commons are and what they mean. To, to be not just like a set of families that share governance over a pasture, um, but also the, that being nested into a global commons, a bioregional commons, and different types of membership and different types of governance and sort of a, a distinction of rights and responsibilities that's much more granular. And I think to just sort of anchor a place where I think there's a lot of interesting innovation taking place around this that I have been inspired by is, you know, Glenn Weil and the radical exchange community, I think are, are important. It's an important piece of the puzzle and, and in the discourse around how they're thinking about, you know, the relationship between, for instance, private property, individuals, commons, uh, you know, and, and markets, um, which I think is counterintuitive at this stage, uh, that where 
most of the discourse has been dominated for many years by sort of classical or neoliberal economics or or this like strange polar opposite this it appears to be polar opposite sort of socialist communist the left versus the right and i don't think that's at all a useful framing for things basically yeah right no but um uh, so essentially i think it's really interesting when you say when you said you know it's like uh, the ecosystem broke brought you into into existence you know, because they needed the the players in the ecosystem needed uh, a technology if i if i got it well no and uh, this idea that we can connect the technological side with the actual ecosystemic side of the relationships uh in this sovereign way by essentially bringing a technology into existence as an expression of the maturity of the ecosystem i think it's really a testament to how low the transaction cost into this economy it is now. And anyways, I think, uh, Stina, you wanted to ask about some dynamics that may play out in this transition. Yeah. So I, I think I wanted to tag on to the this transaction costs that you were talking about. So transaction costs are going down. So that means that also the cost of bureaucracy and the cost of organizing is going down, right? And this is something that you're really playing in in that space. So what I'm curious to know is what happens then to existing dominant structures and players and how do you relate with them so i'm thinking there have been like global institutions that have been trying to wrap their heads around those challenges uh, let's say not very successfully so far and then there are of course on the other spectrum also maybe uh, dominant agro industry players who may be i don't know if they are in the way of what you're trying to do and I, i'm just very curious to know how you relate to both those existing like let's say global giants in the in the space that you're trying to i don't i don't know if disrupt is the right uh, uh, term but I'm, i'm sure you understand what i mean and can pick it up on from here yeah yeah no, that's a great question i mean they will e- evolve or they will die <laughs> not not to put too far <laughs> right. of a point on it <laughs> and it's not just because it's not like we will do this this is the This is the emergent phenomena as you noted transaction costs are are going down at least right now I mean there could be disruption to that trend but organizing is becoming easy, easier it's also it's also demanded of us that we transform our organizational capacity to face existential problems and that we have place-based local regenerative outcomes that aggregate at a planetary scale these are things it's not like region now that's the the context that we're emerging as a living system response to what's happening as a community response to what's happening either institutions will um be capable of transforming and adapting and engaging with that reality and and becoming useful you know i think that this is the thing you know charles darwin and sort of the the um the interpretation of of social darwinism is always survival of the fittest but that's not really what darwin said if you go read darwin he's talking about survival of the fit meaning how well does an organism weave itself into deeply mutual relationships with the ecosystem right and so resilience is a function of how useful you are to the health of the whole 
and the specific members that make up the whole. And so institutions, I, I think that the imperative in the 21st century for institutions to be relevant is out cooperate the competition. That's our North Star. That is our motto at Region Network, out cooperate the competition. If institutions, transnational corporations cannot meaningfully produce public goods uh, and minimize their their externalized costs, they will become irrelevant because they have to become irrelevant because that's the reality. It's the existential empirical reality that we're all in. And if they if they if they continue to be inefficient and ineffective at that and even put people's lives and the planet at risk, they'll be, you know, taken out of the system. Or they'll destroy the system. And because it's that clear and clear cut, in my opinion, you know, it will go, I think it will go well. It has to go well. But I mean, maybe a question is uh, uh, then how you address it with uh, currency by transactionalizing it instead of bounding it with the context? Well, I don't think it's either or. Again, I, I, I mean, I would just invite us to sort of revisit this. I think this embedded in this question is sort of a a way of thinking about moneyness, you know, and, and, and transactional versus non-transactional relationships. And I think, I think by designing and giving governance over the redesign of the transactional sort of matrix and incentive structure. You know, in one way you can conceptualize region network as a decentral bank, meaning we have a a central sort of in quotes currency, but what that currency is, it's not, it's not really a currency. It's a, you know, it's a digital object that gives governance rights. So maybe it's more like a, a taxi medallion in New York city that gives you the rights to, you know, do work on the network. It gives you the rights to, you know, um, do work, to write to the public ledger. That's what the token gives you rights to. Not only does it give you the rights like a toll, a toll token to go across a bridge, but it also gives you the rights to, you know, govern um, the, the bridge or to govern the, the ecosystem of taxi drivers or whatever it is. So it's, it's, this, it's this dual purpose um, governance and utility of public infrastructure. And those are the rights of the region token, right? That's what it does. It's, it's, it's utility. So it allows us to decide where we want to create transactional incentives where we want to tax ourselves or incentivize ourselves, subsidize ourselves, and where we want to create space that's non-transactional. So it actually gives agency, I, I believe, in a way that is maybe more akin to the way that, you know, money hasn't always just been uh, money. You know, if we look back in time uh, to, for instance, the, the, the histories of this that I'm most familiar with are, you know, m- moneyness expressing itself in sort of Native American culture. You have things like wampum, which became the money of the eastern seaboard of, 
of what has now become the United States, um, it, be, it was the money for a long time, even during the colonial period, people would buy, you know, land or services or goods with shell beads, right? With wampum. But wampum was also what created the history of people's relationship to the earth, the agreements between people and the earth, the agreements between people and other people in the form of um, the social contract of like a treaty. So a wampum belt was like a history of the lineage. It also could be generated as a treaty between people. It was also used to, to sort of, you know, those belts were sort of metabolized and traded right as as currency so there's a clear example of the multivalent nature that currency can have and i believe that's some of the design inspiration we've taken for thinking about the region token itself as the governance token the the token that allows you to create these um you know uh, digital treaties that express a relationship with place parties who benefit from that are being creating social contracts around. Um, so I don't know if that's directly to your point, but really on point, you know, because uh, sometimes when I also host conversations on complexity thinking and, uh, and uh, we recently had, for example, my friend Nora that, that joined us and uh, Nora Bateson and uh, we had Dave Snowden as well and others So the point is, is often, and especially I think uh, with certain approaches to complexity, is always about, you know, uh, then there is a bottom line where we have to organize. So we cannot not rely on a technology, even if it's a kind of rational, mechanistic approach to solving the problem. What, what do you think about that? To add some bits, you know, maybe it's, uh, it's much more about a, a question of culture, you know, It's, uh, uh, what we want to build in the end is this culture of uh, place-basedness, of, pre of presence in the community, in the landscape, something that for some reasons we lost recently through technology. So I think we are coming back, you know, for example, to the reflections of uh, Hugh Huey when he talks about cosmotechnics. So uh, developing a place-based thesis to using technology to really change how we organize and transcend, you know, the good sack, let's say, that we seem to be in postmodernity and, and capitalism. Well, look, technology, there's sort of a double helix, sort of, you know, a co-emergent relationship, obviously, between um, culture and technology. But I, I think technology is is most, so, so it's, you know, it's an Ouroboros or whatever, the, the, the serpent is eating its tail, but it's not, technology is not just, I, I think many technologists would say, oh, like technology is transforming culture. And I would say, I think it's maybe more accurate to think about technology as an artifact of culture. Technology is emerging out of the culture. And so if you have a culture that is fleeing from itself. If you have a culture that is steeped in trauma and violence and um, running as fast as it can to some you know, painless nowhere land that doesn't exist, 
that technology will have certain attributes and it will have certain consequences because it's coming out of a culture that is, you know, disembodied and terrified. If you have a, if you have technology that's emerging out of a, a culture of, of deep respect and responsibility and care, that technology will look very, very different, but it will, but they may be trying to approach the same um, existential conditions, right? So if you have technology stemming from uh, a, a disembodied terror of the planet that's trying to think about, to create an artifact that helps safeguard you know, humans living on earth, you get, you know, a direct giant, you spend a bunch of money on direct air capture machines and you, you know, and also just to be frank, you know, you get what we have now with carbon markets and et cetera. I believe, you know, what's emerging, the the culture, at least that I um, partially come from, and this is going to be multivalent because I'm also, you know, I'm a, I'm a millennial, you know, uh, I grew up in a, you know, fairly, you know, lower middle class, middle class family. I have all of that enculturated, you know, um, calcified elements. So I can't claim to be sort of like, I'm not, uh, you know, claiming to be outside of that, right? I'm, I'm embedded in that. And the, the, the culture that I'm choosing to try to invoke and devote my agency to growing is one of uh, place-based responsibility, reciprocity, and care. Um, and, and, and I think that that resonates with most of the community that has been attracted to Regen Network. And we're attempting to, to regenerate a set of... A, artifacts, technological artifacts to you and to use the artifacts, technological artifacts that have been created by a different culture um, to, to reinvent them and to use them, you know, uh, for this question of agreements about ecological health. And some of those agreements, because, because this is a global problem, will be made with people who are not of our culture. And that's the nature of you know, this is where the strict localism starts to fall flat. You you have to be able to relate to, you know, in quotes, the other. We have to be able to create a, a, a common understanding of planetary thresholds. And we have to ground action with our neighbors in a single place. There is, you know, there is no dichotomy there. It's nested. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I'm speaking exactly to your point again, but but hopefully. Well, uh, right. I mean, there is so much that you covered, and uh, and uh, I really, I, I really, I think I I would like to give a little final twist to the conversation uh, before we edge uh, towards closing, uh, and I wanted to explore with you a bit more the technological uh, and technical perspective uh, as, a, as a counterpart, let's say. You know? So I wanted to, you know, if I'm not wrong, uh, uh, a region network is based on a proof-of-stake hybrid model. Also, you also have some kind of uh, 
uh, additional validation, additional uh, elements of validation from, uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, maybe you can explore a little bit uh, on that. And uh, I wanted to check uh, with you, for example, different perspectives like uh, Holochain uh, perspective and, for example, uh, the proof of work perspective. Why not? those perspectives and instead going for a proof-of-stake hybrid model like you just do? Sure. Yeah, so we're a, we're a hybrid proof-of-stake model. We have, um, you know, from a, from a mechanism and, and technological perspective, we're pretty just straight vanilla proof-of-stake, but we solved some of the issues that we saw with proof-of-stake to begin with, with our token distribution strategy. So having sort of 30%, uh, well, really 35%, which is essentially a Byzantine veto, you know, uh, you can halt the chain with that being sort of um, strictly distributed to um, entities with identity that are not don't have a transactional relationship with getting those tokens is our first step in sort of transforming some of the ways that we think proof of stake as a model fall short. Um, I also think there's a there's a lot of really exciting innovation to, to do um, that we plan on engaging our community with. So I think, you know, I, I think it's problematic to think of, you know, protocol design as a sort of finished, at least in our case, we're very keen to be evolving the, the mechanism, the consensus mechanism and the governance, um, sort of growing a capability and capacity in our community to to tune the governance mechanism of the network to what is needed. Um, proof of stake is uh, is workable. This is one of the reasons why we used it. It's workable. Um, it's transparent. It, it has the right data availability and uh, Byzantine fault tolerant guarantees that we think are necessary. It has the right collision resistance or sort of uh, ability to to uh, enforce no double counting that we think was, you know, essential. Um, and it's enormously energy efficient. You know, our, our blockchain uh, operating with nodes on every continent now. The point that I get from you is uh, the ecosystem was more mature, basically. It's much more mature. For, for, if we're talking like, if we're juxtaposing our choice with the, like, why not hollow chain? <laughs> No, that's yeah. funny because uh, Stina, I was, you know, I was getting crazy and because uh, Stina told me I'm lost and I thought, you know, if Stina is lost, maybe half of our listeners are going to be lost uh, talking about this. And I think uh, the point is, cre- is clear. No? You choose to go for proof of stake hybrid on Ethereum uh, blockchain because, uh, am, am I right? Is it Ethereum blockchain? No, we're not an Ethereum blockchain. So we're built on the Cosmos SDK. The Cosmos SDK is the most used public proof of stake blockchain framework. Our team, our engineering team also is the maintainer for the SDK. So there's about 200 blockchains using the Cosmos SDK with a combined market cap right now. Well, there's been some corrections the last few days, but you know, between 80 and $100 billion is secured by the Cosmos SDK. So we have a we have a sovereign proof of stake blockchain that can communicate with other sovereign proof of stake blockchains. So in that way, it's very similar to the Holochain approach where you're not enforcing a global consensus, right? But it's it's also, also practically speaking, there are different, everything is a trade-off. So we've made different trade-offs in the Holochain community. We believe we've chosen the right trade-offs for our use case. 
the Holochain community, I think, is doing interesting things. That technology was just, frankly, not nowhere near mature enough to even consider using. I, I think that I'm very excited to see what the Holochain community is going to do. And I fully think that there can be like pretty exciting integrations and complementarity. Proof of work is almost hardly worth mentioning. I mean, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it has, um, I mean, it's, look, some amount, like a, like some amount of proof of work in the larger ecosystem, cr crypto economic ecosystem, hopefully even just like the broader planetary um, sort of accounting system, some amount of proof of work, I think is actually smart. Uh, the, uh, the level of proof of work that the Bitcoin uh, blockchain uses to sort of create a store of value and uh, make it possible to transfer that value, I think is totally crazy. So let me get back on this in a moment. One thing that I wanted to double click on is that uh, when I said the Ethereum, you know, because, you know, I don't know what kind of connections my brain was doing, but uh, Ethereum is actually moving from the proof of work, uh, uh, let's say, side onto the proof of stake side. No, so it's, that's why I was doing this connection. But essentially... And that's interesting, you know, because uh, sometimes we say the Ethereum ecosystem, but then maybe we, we have to talk about the proof of stake ecosystem, uh, essentially, at least in terms of intentions. And uh, then let me get back to the proof of work thing, you know. So uh, I was about to ask you, and then maybe we edge towards the closure of the conversation, but I was about to ask you, essentially, uh, you said some proof of work is acceptable. Right? And so I was about to uh, ask you in a in a... In a Uh, provocative way, how much then? And then on the other question that I wanted to, to ask you is, once we have the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, isn't worth doing basically every information publication on the blockchain instead of doing it on other places? So first, first I'll answer how much is enough. I mean, I, there's a there's a blockchain called, uh, you know, sort of smaller market market cap blockchain called Zeliqua, which is quite a cool hybrid of sort of proof of stake, proof of work, which I think can give us an example of the, the usefulness of having proof of work in the system in a in a sort of small and lightweight way that does not use very much, really doesn't use very much extra energy uh, at all, but provides uh you know, sort of the, the cryptographic problem solving, r randomness and, and timekeeping. Proof of work does a great job of timekeeping in a way that proof of stake has trouble with, right? It, because there's a consensus and Holochain, like they don't care about consensus, but that that's a trade-off, even though in their marketing, they would like us to believe it's not, it's a trade-off and it creates a bunch of problems. So having a shared time as a standard allows you to have time stamps, which allows you to create sort of proof of provenance uh, around claims, for instance, to, to, to ensure that they're not uh, being counterfeited, right? And so proof of work can be very, very, very useful uh, in, in certain ways. What's the exact amount of proof of work that's right? you know, at a global scale? I don't know. I don't, I think in the long run, there will probably be a proof of work blockchain. It seems to me like a pretty safe bet. It will be Bitcoin. Um, and I hope that they, you know, make some decisions to make it significantly more efficient. And, you know, it, I, I don't think this sort of like hand wavy Bitcoin is going to destroy the world because of its energy usage is at all, uh, you know, I, 
I mean, I think there's an efficiency issue and I don't really hold or love Bitcoin. But that's interesting, you know, that you insist on this efficiency issue. Can you tell me a bit more? Where do you see the inefficiencies in the Bitcoin blockchain? It's inefficient from a perspective, from my perspective. It's all what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing for the cheapness of energy, right, uh, and your ability to produce, to, to run computers, to do, to optimize your hash rate, then, you know, uh, placing mining um, operations in northern China where they use a bunch of coal and there's corrupt, you know, sort of a corrupt regime that they can subsidize Bitcoin mining makes a lot of sense. So that's so but it's not energy. It's not greenhouse gas efficient. It's it's sort of uh, it's efficient in the relationship between the the fiat money cost of buying energy and the the price of bitcoin that's what's being optimized for but the larger energy efficiency and sort of like the efficiency of the network's ability to produce a public good which is a sort of like a store of value that is censorship proof and uh, units of account that can be transferred that is censorship proof which is its value proposition if you were optimizing it for efficiency for the greenhouse gas emissions to provide those things as the value proposition, Bitcoin's failing. In general, I think uh, because it's so expensive that essentially once we have discovered the technology, the technology has this huge potential, let's say, to remove a lot of bureaucracy infrastructure from our society. So now we have the technology and, uh, and we ha- we're not using it for, for this. We are using it for uh, other things, just finance, basically. So the, the point is, for example, when you said, uh, you know, it will push you to consume uh, coal for example you know because it's cheaper uh, well actually i think uh, solar energy is even cheaper than coal so why should we go for coal or maybe people will depends i mean what i mean is it's immersed in the same let's say dynamics that cover the whole economy so at the end of the day you are talking about politics and freedom of speech because uh, you cannot say you do, you cannot use uh, uh, power for uh, doing mining you know that's you know uh, Either you 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 prohibit it, otherwise the blockchain is there, and so so I think we're going to use it. And this doesn't mean that, for example, all the uh, smart contracting needs to happen on their blockchain. That's another point because I think it's a matter of uh, the price uh, uh, that also this uh, transaction uh, uh, management has, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, tariffs and so on. But it's interesting, I think, in the long term. It's really hard not to see the potential of the blockchain, the Bitcoin proof of work blockchain, to host most of the world's information. And that the you know, if you look at the climate, the carbon footprint it has, uh, versus the work, the job that can do for humanity, is a fairly small carbon footprint. That's the point that I'm that I'm raising, but not as a critique of your choosing this uh, blockchain at the moment you know and it's also interesting to to look into what you said about the ecosystem maturity i think feasibility of using the bitcoin blockchain to host all the world's information is limited but using the bitcoin blockchain to anchor or ethereum blockchain which actually seems like it's maybe a more likely scenario or, or i mean really in the cosmos the cosmos approach here is that it's going to be an internet of blockchains. There, there's no one chain to rule them all. There won't be. It's impossible 
and crazy to think that there will be. They'll each have their, you know, there, there, there'll be a lot of different niches and roles. And there's a bunch of reasons I could get into why Bitcoin is not going to be the one and nor will Ethereum, but they'll both play important roles. And, and, and I do agree that if you think about the potential of what, you know, just the Bitcoin blockchain alone offers to the world in terms of utility versus its energy usage, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's probably still net a bargain, but, and I, I sort of, you know, and I stick with, and what I said before is true also that if you're thinking the way I am, it's not optimized. The value that it's producing is not, you know, optimized in the right way. I do think that we're going to see competitive market forces start to push, you know, Bitcoin miners to, um, and, and I think you were alluding to this, to, to be sort of competing and driving renewable energy. I mean, I think that that's a likely, that is already happening. I also think that the by and large, there's a lot of arguments coming from that side that are, you know, maybe a little flimsy. It's a very interesting polemic right now around the Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin good. You know, I, I think the answer is actually sort of in the middle, nor do I think Bitcoin is an inevitability. Actually, it could get outcompeted still. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, there's, it's complex and interesting. I don't at all disagree with anything you're saying about it's, you know, it's sort of a bargain for what for the transformative potential it offers to society. I, I think that's true. Right. And it's interesting also to look into what, to what layers, let's say, of this stack that uh, I was thinking to define a value chain, but maybe it's more like to be seen as a, not to say, but basically a Maslow version of the value chain uh, where uh, the the innovation will move, you know, and uh, and to what extent is going to be in contracts, it's going to be in organizational uh, forms, it's going to be in, uh, I don't know, whatever uh, kind of uh, if financial tools, uh, where is going to be this innovation happening on top of these uh, foundational layers? By the way, it was uh, like a fairly mind-blowing conversation. I really, I, re I think we really uh, moved the needle uh, in terms of understanding uh, how deep the, the rabbit hole <laughs> of organizing in the 21st century is, is. so I, I really thank thank thanks so much for for the in the great insights yeah uh thanks so much for having me uh it's been it's been a pleasure i'm um yeah i'm grateful for the work that you all are doing in the world and excited to uh have a good deep deep dive down the rabbit hole here yeah, when you have the the wisdom part of the last part of the conversation that is uh, accessible in a meme, then uh, I'm be very happily watching that. <laughs> That's going to be our challenge. Uh, I think uh, we should take on this challenge, make a meme out of this. Definitely. Thank you so much. Anything uh, just last minute you want to add on uh, news from uh, for to look for or, you know, any special things to for us to look up? Well, stay tuned. We'll be having sort of a, a you know public accessibility for region tokens for people who want to dive in to helping you know co-create and govern this uh, big experiment with us to to uh, unleash social coordination potential for planetary regeneration. Uh, and you know, I, I would certainly invite people who who this conversation enlivened or upset <laughs> if you had. Um, you know, a, a response that you'd let you're interested in engaging more, 
either direction. Actually, it's fine to join us over on our, our Discord. We have a pretty lively community over there. Just really welcome voices and engagement. And that's a good conduit to engage with the different groups of people all over the world from sort of Amazonian indigenous people to, you know, dev shops in India to, you know, validators all around the world and really everything in between who are all coming together to think about this problem set around how do we make it accessible, lower transaction cost around ecological state claims and assets and make it possible for people to sort of govern the commons and interact with the markets in the best way for ecological health. Thank you so much again. And uh, to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.